Hi everyone, it's me, Sophia, and I can hardly believe it, but you're about to listen to the first ever episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. Did I cringe while editing to the sound of my own voice? Yes. Did I procrastinate on finally editing on Audacity? Absolutely, but I did it. And you're about to give a listen to my incredible conversation with John Grimm, who besides exuding warmth and what us Gen Zers call good vibes, is also a scholar and professor of religion at Yale University. He's a leading expert in the fields of comparative religion and indigenous spirituality, and has made significant contributions to the understanding of the relationship between religion and the natural world. With numerous books and articles under his belt, John has been a driving force in shaping the academic study of religion for many years. With that said, let's welcome John Grimm onto the show. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is the Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. to start out with you could just tell us a little bit about your studies what's the story of John Grimm uh, um, how you got into studying comparative religion and then more specifically how you became interested in indigenous spirituality yes I come from North Dakota and uh, North Dakota in the informally it was a state of independent politics because there were so many different ethnic groups, a very uh, low population state, but different ethnic groups, uh, German, Russian, which is part of my background on my mother's side, Irish, Scottish, Norwegian, uh, very interesting groups of people. And so I had from my early years, uh, from a, a Roman Catholic background, very religious family, especially my mother. So that uh, that's a stream that's run through my whole life. Uh, and that's a, uh, a type of religiosity that was also social justice oriented. So the Catholic Church had picked up on that. And I find it uh, evident in many of the Christian mainstream uh, churches. But the, my mentioning North Dakota, I think it's important because of the I interaction with the natural world. I came from a hunting family. And so there was food that was put on the table that uh, my family had hunted and brought home, rabbits, pheasants, deer, uh, turkeys. And so nowadays, some people don't have a clear understanding of a, a hunting family, and uh, I... I don't need to go into that, but I think that's an important connection to indigenous traditions for me. So the sense of religiosity, my my background, and I also had wonderful dreams and experiences in my youth that op they disposed me to a sense that the world could talk to me and that the world could talk in the natural world or through dreams. I did not find that operative in my Catholic background. So that when I had these experiences and I went to an undergraduate college in Minnesota, St. John's University, it was a really wonderful experience with the Benedictine monks in that uh, the sense of Western civilization as 
woven with Christianity. So it, it had definitely the Benedictine spirituality, but I became very interested in history and the study of religion. And at that time, the study of religion in the Catholic setting, in many Protestant and other settings, had moved away from simply theology into religious studies. And it may seem a small difference, but rather significant. In the theological perspective, Christianity predominates. So now I teach at Yale in the School of the Environment, and we have a joint degree program with Yale Divinity School. Divinity School is still theologically oriented. It's very Christian. So the students are, of course, very interested in the perspective that the Forum on Religion and Ecology brings, namely an emphasis upon uh, religions of the world or the old phrase world religions. We can talk about that later, these distinctions in terms. But uh, I did a, a double major in history and religious studies at that Benedictine school. And I came east to study with Thomas Berry in the history of religions in 1968. I knew of three programs in the history of religion at that time, Claremont in California, University of Chicago, and uh, Fordham. And I uh, opted because of the direction and guidance of these Benedictine mentors at St. John's University in Minnesota to study with Thomas Berry at Fordham. And that made all the difference. He, as a, as a cultural historian, he was, when I met him, very oriented towards the study of, let me use the phrase, world religions. And by 1970, he had made a shift in his thinking to the question of cosmology. And cosmology for him meant the universe as it manifests itself, especially on the earth. And so that's, uh, you, you can see where my background then in religion and ecology flows out of this, uh, my biography. Did you actually do any hunting yourself? I was a walker more than a hunter, but yes, I hunted. And I have a, a story that I've begun to illustrate uh, of my, the only time I shot a deer. I uh, just quickly, uh, the family farm out in North, uh, central Northwestern uh, North Dakota, uh, my father knew it very well. He had been raised up as a boy there and we had already shot one deer. He shot that deer, and that's a story in itself. But we went to the next setting, which was a several small hills. North Dakota is a very plains state, P-L-A-I-N-S, and not so many hills in the central section. But there are some where I uh, that where this farm is at. And he went up the first hill, and he said, when he dropped me off, walk to the second fence, turn and go up the hill, you'll drive the deer. You also will have a shot at some deer, but you'll also drive them to me. By the time I got to the second fence, a herd of 30 deer were going up the hill and I became fascinated. And I went over the second fence. I went over the third fence. I went over a fourth fence. I was just uh, so walking madly. <laughs> and suddenly I began to realize, where am I? And I turned and I went up and there in a clearing was a beautiful buck with 14 points. It was just the most beautiful animal. 
And he looked at me and he turned his head. And uh, I went into what the hunters call buck fever. I lost consciousness, but I had been trained so well. I raised the rifle, shot him right in the necks, which is an, uh, a, an appropriate place so that the meat isn't spoiled and he, he fell. And I knew at that moment, even though I had not had any contact with indigenous people, I knew he had given himself to me. And later when I would talk with elders, that's uh, a uh, ordinary, that's the understanding that native people have of hunting and why they pray before and during the hunt. And so yes, I hunted, Sophia. I went to the top of that hill and there was a figure in red two hills away he was waving, waving. It was my father. And I, I knew at that moment that when I died, that's what I would see. Wow. It's an interesting moment. So again, in my religious background, no one talked that way to me. And so I, I was searching for, well, are there religious traditions that have a feeling for vision experiences or dreams? Did you, because I'm always fascinated by what draws people to religion and then also what pushes them away. Uh, um, because there's always two sides to that, aren't there? Um, so I'm wondering, as a young person, what, what was the thing that drew you toward being curious about religion? Because there's so many young people who, have like the opposite reaction. Uh, so. What a good question, and you frame it so well, Sophia. It's uh, uh, my my own youth, like all of us, is not so far from me. I think that's an interesting thing, Sophia. As I I look at you and think about you and your decades to come, you know, what will you think about this moment in your life or talking with older people about these issues? But it's a, it's a fascinating thing to think of that my own youth, that touch away and. Uh, one dimension of religion that uh, my mother passed on to me was uh, inner silence and an inner reflective. So I've been very interested in the contemplative, the mystical, the sense of uh, religion that often defies language. You can't find words to express it. But let me jump to the other side of your equation. When Mary Evelyn and I talk about our religion and ecology project in public, we begin or we make certain to say very clear in our opening remarks is religion has filled with problems as well as promise. And there's no way to avoid that. And if a person doesn't understand what I mean by problems, you can, you know, we can go into a whole historical uh, discussion in that regard. But I think your question acknowledges the problems, that the dogmatism the intolerance that religions can present sometimes like the teaching in Christianity uh, that's identified with the word Trinity and often the triune, you know, as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And, and that's presented to someone as if it's dogma. There's no way to even question it or it just has to be totally accepted. Mm -hmm. In fact, I find in my reading of early Christianity that wasn't the way it was presented at all. It was an understanding that the divine, that the sense of creative presence or father is a is a mystery of profound encounter. 
And so the idea of the Trinity was emerged as a symbolic expression to, to, give a, to give some language to mystery. And so rather than something that forced on people, it was an effort to try and open doors for people. What, you know, what is the Father? What's their relationship? And, and how is spirit continuing today? So the, the question that you raise, I think, is a very appropriate one about discerning the, the intentions of religion and having the possibility of questioning. Now, I know we've had some discussion about the, the phrases religion and ecology and religious naturalism. I yeah. think this captures a little bit of it. So if we, we might return to that later. But mm -hmm. just to say, uh, I'm very much in favor of both terms. I use religion and ecology more often than religious naturalism. But religious naturalism, especially one of their spokespeople, Ursula Goodenough, an excellent cell biologist, uh, at Washington University in um, in St. Louis. Uh, she was there. She's now emeritus. But religious naturalism for this group uh, is, you notice there's no mention of God. There's no theological language there. So they're trying to reach out and provide a sense of the wonder and the aesthetic beauty of the world, naturalism, without falling into all of the dogmatism so I find religious naturalism very appealing, but for me personally, the religion and ecology phrase retains or keeps open the possibility that there is there are spirits. Yeah. There is a, there's a divine or a transcendent, and that mm -hmm. that transcendent can be folded into the world. Go ahead. Yeah. I guess I'm going to put a question out to both of you, my dad as well, because I want to hear what he thinks, because Excellent. Yeah, it's my dad, and I, I get curious about what he thinks sometimes. But this idea of mystery that you brought up is is really interesting because I've I've heard a lot of people talk about the sense that the mystery of religion and almost of desire as well, desire for material objects, um, desire for nice vacations and stuff has that the mystery is gone because of the advances in technology and social media and globalization. And you mentioned how your experience with the deer kind of like made you think more about that. And I'm wondering for my dad as well, like how has that evolved in your life? And Yeah, a couple of things come to my mind. And, and let me just throw them out. And then Jerry, you pick up. Uh, the, the word enchantment and re-enchantment, I think is a, is a runway to use that metaphor to mm -hmm. thinking about your question that many would say our technology and scientific objectivism dims down the enchantment of the world and that we're trying to reconnect with the world through re-enchantment. Mm -hmm. So let me stop there. I have another point, but Jerry, go ahead. You know, I think fundamentally your question boils down to material versus spiritual. And I think I think they are not mutually exclusive, just like reason and faith aren't mutually exclusive. You know, basically material is of this world and spiritual is of another world. The other way of looking at it is external versus internal. You know, we have all these external things that we're developing, technologies and, and wealth and stuff like that versus spiritual and internal development as well. So as I've gotten older, that dichotomy has gotten more defined and I have come to realize that it's not mutually exclusive by any means. Mm -hmm. I, I like that, yeah. 
I'm very drawn to the thought of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Did I mention him before? To oh, you yes, did. And Jerry, have you encountered his work at all? Or? I have not. Uh, I have his picture. Oh, he's up on the top of the cabinet up there. He's uh, oh, yeah, I see it. looking over us. He also influenced Thomas Berry. So mm -hmm. without going on and on about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, but um, he came very early in his life to a position similar to what you've just articulated, Jerry, that matter spirit to him were totally separated in his uh, as a Jesuit a priest, uh, so a, a very Christian orientation, and a paleontologist. And then you can see the struggle, huh? A mm -hmm. paleontologist trying to understand early life forms, especially humans, a uh, hominid form for Teilhard. And so uh, Teilhard's um, basic premise was that the human is positioned in the world of science and even in the religious world as anomaly. In the religious world, uh, the human is created very uniquely by the divine, and the sense of soul or the rational is imparted to the human. That, that's let me just save that for a moment. But on the science side, the the rational capacity of the human was seen as apart from the mainstream of evolution, which was did not manifest that rational reflective capacity of the human. So we humans were like a, a side eddy, utterly unique. For Teilhard, that was totally unacceptable. If we humans are in the main, are, if we're in evolution, we are in the mainstream. And if we have consciousness, that consciousness has been there from the get-go. I, I don't care for the term Big Bang so much. I like the term Brian Swim uses, the primal flaring forth. From that fluttering forth of the universe, there has been consciousness. So when people hear that sometimes they say, oh, Grim, you mean human consciousness? No, 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 I don't mean human consciousness. I mean patterning, ordering. I mean logos in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I could find terms in other religious traditions like uh, a Dharma in, in South Asia or Chi in the East Asian the sense of ordering or patterning in the universe from the get-go. So the human is in continuity with the whole emergence of the universe. Teilhard then found the terms matter and spirit, if they are separated, it totally misses this point. Matter and spirit are one thing. They There's no and. <laughs> it's matter-spirit for Teilhard and that they are interactive from the get-go. And I'll stop with this point. Spirit for Teilhard is the most interesting, the way he talks about it. He makes it a temporal dynamic. It's, it's many things, but spirit, matter spirit, is uh, pulling into the future. And so mm -hmm. he's very future-oriented, Teilhard. So many religions, if you think of it, are past-oriented. Genesis, beginning you know jesus back then or the last supper back then <laughs> and i think a lot of young people find that a little off-putting because they, they want to be contemporary and here's a guy who felt the spiritual is drawing us forward it's been there from the beginning so of course it has this sense of a historical past dynamic but its major teaching to the human is the future mm -hmm. yeah and and even just a uh comment on something that you said you know i think in christianity we believe that the universe began 
by basically God speaking it into existence. He spoke and everything started happening. So in a sense, that word is almost a small encapsulation of God's consciousness, his idea. And that's essentially what this whole universe is patterned after. So we are just flower upon flower of that consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of times what kind of going back to what we were saying before, what pushes people away from religion is kind of like this teenage rebellion. I don't want to do what my parents did. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to listen to the music they don't like, and I'm going to (laughs) abandon the religion they follow. And, and yeah, I think that what you, you, what you've just said is kind of like reframing it in a way that's probably more accurate, actually, because religion is about development, isn't it? So it's just inherently meant to be about the future, whereas the dogma of it is maybe more about the past. But, but yeah, that's interesting. yeah, I want to, um, I am really excited to talk about indigenous spirituality with you. But first, I just want you to explain a little bit more about what religion and ecology is so that we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, so yeah, what is religious religion and ecology, and why is it important to the study of religion as a whole? Uh, let, let me just pick up on your referencing indigenous. Many uh, speakers, when they begin, they'll open with a land statement now, recognizing the native people in this region. So this is a Connecticut Pequot people and indigenous uh, uh, Quinnipiac people. I uh, I favor land statements. I think it's very important to recognize indigenous people. But when I talk with students, I say, if it's just the words, they may fall short. We need to follow it up. And so the follow-up, Sophia, is this whole religion and ecology project at Mary Evelyn. When I hear a land statement now, what excites me is to think that what Native people understood, relationships with land, it's in the religious traditions. Now, I used this phrase earlier, world religions, and then I said, I opt for religions of the world. It's maybe a too fine a distinction, but religions of the world says clearly Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, they did not come from Mars. They come out of human communities on this earth so they are religions from the, within this world. World religions developed as an academic study, and it's like it set a bar. And you have to achieve this bar before you can be at the table of world religions. And you have to have a one God, have institutions, priests, nuns, uh, imams, all this. You have to have buildings where you can see right away indigenous traditions, They don't get to the table. So even early on in the encounter with indigenous traditions, many explorers said they don't have a religion. We can we see no evidence of any kind of God or religion. So the the religion and ecology project was a way of uh, both reorienting the environmental discussion towards cultural issues namely religion as a a cultural expression and opening the door so that not only the mainstream religions, but the religions that have always attended to the land could participate. 
So simply put, religion and ecology is an effort to articulate a field of study that recognizes that religious traditions in the human family have always been in dialogue and discourse with local bioregions. That's what religion and ecology is about. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I could kind of read my dad's mind there for a minute because when you said <laughs> the thing about the um, um, people, it being about more than the land statements being about more than the words, I I could hear him like silently agree because <laughs> my dad my dad is always the person who he comes back from mass and then he's like dissecting one tiny little thing they said. Ah, uh, like, <laughs> interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> do you have yeah. uh, Sophia? Do you have that same propensity, or? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, like father, like daughter. Then, huh? Yeah, I just think that words have meanings, and that oftentimes words have connections amongst themselves and with ideas that might not be intuitive until you really diagnose and, and really look closely at the word itself. Mm. So, and and another thing um, that I thought that I thought was kind of linked is what you were saying about language and yeah. I, I spent some time a tiny amount of time like looking at Hawaiian actually um because I was looking at endangered languages I was studying endangered languages and one thing that I found really striking was just the structure of the language and I will get to that well, later on regarding like the grammar of animacy that was in the paper you sent me um but I almost wonder if in some languages it's it's easier to not ignore um, these ideas. So it's like maybe it's harder in some languages to just kind of say things facetiously. I'm not yeah. sure. That's just an idea I'm just throwing out. Yeah. Or maybe not uh, facetiously, but uh, to have a sense that uh, the, 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 the language uh, is a metaphor. If we talk of something like the world is alive, it's just a metaphor that the science community has really convinced us it's all material energy in some packets and forms, and there's no evidence of any soul or aliveness in the world itself. And so when indigenous people talk about a living world or or people who are have an agenda like that, they're trying to push something else. Whereas I think your point is a very interesting one about some languages, especially verbals and the majority, the vast majority of indigenous languages around the world, not simply in the North American setting, but around the world, they're verbals. They're much more oriented towards uh, a language that expresses the livingness of the world and the capacity of the world to speak. Mm -hmm. And so uh, obviously Robin Kimmerer is very much about that in much of her work. And she brings up that phrase that we might talk of uh, later, the grammar of animacy. Yeah. But isn't it, isn't it powerful too, to look at a language like Hawaiian yeah. and the, the native speakers will take the words apart and find these interconnectedness in this, the vibrancy within words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, right. I have a quote by uh, Robin. Uh, so that's a nice segue, thank you. 
um, which goes, it's at the beginning of the paper, the indigenous cosmovisions and humanist yeah. perspective of materialism. And it's an economy that grants personhood to corporations, but denies oh. it to more than human beings. This is a Wendigo community. Uh, and Wendigo here, it explained in the paper, is a cannibal monster in Anishinaabe stories who eats uncontrollably. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate a, a bit on what this means. Yeah, thank you for correctly pronouncing Anishinaabe. That's a lovely <laughs> language group, and especially the Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi will identify themselves along with their, their own particular tribal term a sense of Anishinaabe, people who shared the language. And uh, and in that language is the word Wendigo. Mm -hmm. And Wendigo is a, um, as the, the, the phrase described it, uh, a term to uh, identify the, uh, the danger of winter starvation. That when the food, the animals are very difficult to hunt, and the cash has been used up, the, the food cash, the food that you've stored in the ground or now in, uh, in cold storage, uh, when it's used up, then people are really hard pressed. And if you're living in a, in a world without processed foods, you have to go out and find food. And mm -hmm. people have starved to death and they will talk of that starvation and the, the terror that people feel of the challenge of not eating one another, cannibalism of people who are faced with the difficulty of starving or surviving. And so it's interesting that among the Anishinaabe people, they ethically hold it is totally inappropriate to eat humans. It's, uh, if you do that, you have been driven by a Wendigo monster, a, a spiritual being. So spirits are also very, can be very problematic. Not all spirits are beneficial. And so Robin Kimmerer uses that term to talk about, and I'm pushing it broadly, our extractive economy. Mm -hmm. That we're now in a position where we have, um, we have brought our American dream to the whole planet. And it's a beautiful dream of prosperity and plenty. And we are not willing to give it up at this point. We are willing to walk into the darkness of our climate emergency with a dream that is driving us towards potential destruction. And that dream is, uh, uh, Robin Kimmerer identifies it with this extractive demon that it requires constantly to be fed. And so we now do begin to question progress as a worldview that we need growth at every point. And we're beginning to raise the question that we do not have the resources or we do not have Earth, uh, Earth's available to continue the American dream in South Asia, East Asia for 10 billion people on the planet. We can't do it. So where will we go? And Robin is using this word indigo from her tradition to shake people, you know, shake them up and say, uh, we, we have a demon amongst us. A few little, a few little notes on that, just a fun wordplay. It's, it's almost like the externalities 
have not been internalized yet. Yeah. So we yeah. can't move forward yeah. and, and modify our dreams with the awareness that, well, there's these other costs that we're not, uh, we're not encountering uh, and, and thinking through. The other, the other idea that I had there was also kind of like the idea of the human body and food consumption. Oh. You know, you were talking about that, you know, that, you know, my dad is fasting just for reference. Oh, <laughs> uh, good. Top of his mind. The, um, you know, we, we have too little food and that's a problem, but at the same time we have too much food and that's a problem as well. We need to find the right amount to get that right balance. And I think that maybe what we're talking about is, is this sense of progress. We haven't found the right amount. We haven't found the right amount of material comforts we haven't found the right amount there's always this kind of push for more and more and more and more and better and essentially it's almost like to use the the analogy of a body it's almost like a cancer you know too much body too much growth is cancer and that's bad as well we need to almost find a right equilibrium yeah mm -hmm. i think uh sophia that your father's identifying cancer would be a parallel to windigo in our times mm, yeah yeah it's that would be yeah that's an interesting connection, yeah. Mm. Something that is run amok. And yet, I, I also like, Jerry, the you're searching for a balance with regard to progress. And I find that I, I do not want to remove from young people the sense that the world, they can have a world of open to their innovation, their ideas, their creativity. And if they identify that with progress, I don't want to dampen that. So right. you know, and, very interesting. And, and there's also a difference between quality and quantity. So, you know, it's also a definition of progress. We can continue improving the quality of our lives without having to increase the quantity. Yeah. It's so obvious, isn't it, that we need to have discussions like this ongoing within families, within communities, within states, a national, international... We need to have these discussions taking place. Yes. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask about grammar of animacy. <laughs> um, so there is another quote by Robin Kimmerer. It's quite long. Yes. Um, and it says, to whom does our language extend the grammar of animacy? Naturally, plants and animals are animate. But as I learn, I'm discovering that the uh, Potawatomi Potawatomi, yeah. Potawatomi, understanding of what it means to be animate diverges from the list of attributes that we all learned in biology 101. In Potawatomi 101, rocks are animate, as are mountains and water and fire and places. Things that are imbued with spirit, our sacred medicines, our songs, our drums, and even stories are all animate. The list of the animate seems to be smaller, filled with objects of the inanimate seems to be smaller filled with objects that are made by people. Of an inanimate being, like a table, we say, what is it? And we answer, dopawen yewe. A table it is. But of an apple, we must say, who is that being? And reply, ushimin yawe, apple that being is. Mm. So I, I, I found this distinction between animate and inanimate really interesting because there seems to me to be like kind of a, a divide between certain traditions where there's some that are very clear on um, like Jainism, for example, 
where everything's everything even rocks and and plants they have a soul whereas in christianity and in christian cultures that have been influenced by christianity it's very clear like oh the rock and the plant doesn't have a soul obviously mm. um so i'm wondering if you could say more about this and what this means for for the ethics that result from indigenous spirituality um and yeah and just comparing and contrasting with other cultures yeah that's a wonderful question i i think historically it's very interesting to realize that within christianity there are uh, expressions of christianity in which uh, uh, realities in the world could have souls so we we have lost some of that or grown apart from it but certainly celtic christianity uh, retains some of that greek orthodox russian orthodox especially the greek orthodox tradition uh, it retains uh, some possibilities for the the logos language to be found within the world so they're very very open and they find themselves often struggling with the scientific worldview that's emerged which has objectified the world and uh, speaks of it as at times dead that's begun to change but that's still very uh, strong in our tradition that the, the world outside is uh, not alive apart from that which expresses animate growth rocks would be uh, rocks and stone would be examples then of that world which is uh, is objectified it can be taken apart and we are we are not um we're not separating a being which has agency which can act in the world and traditions that have recognized that agency i think it's closely connected with their own subjectivity so the world speaks to them and their own personhood or subjectivity is informed by that conversation our subjectivity in the west is largely informed by our internal discussion and our external uh, discussion with like-minded individuals so for instance we we don't talk so much about dogs shaping our personality unless someone has a very special relationship with the dog and then we'll kind of like ah oh, that's that's okay but we don't take it that seriously and traditions uh, like uh, we're using the word indigenous and there's problems with the word indigenous okay for example in africa it's not used in south asia and in, in india it's not accepted in china it's not they use minorities and so um indigenous i hold to it because it's being been used in the united nations on behalf of social justice for small scale societies that have struggled in the face of centralized uh, nation states which have deprived them of all of their rights so the word indigenous is a very helpful language for trying to talk about justice issues for native peoples mm -hmm. i've wandered far afield here from uh, from robin kimmermer and the grammar of animacy and this uh grammar of animacy she ties especially to verbals doesn't she so yeah. she makes it uh obvious then that something that has a presence when when you are in its presence it can speak to you then it requires a certain mode a certain grammar a style of speaking 
in the Potawatomi language that you cannot simply objectify it. Whereas yeah. something that's been made by humans, it may not have that same presence. But even then, uh, when Potawatomi, when indigenous people, uh, uh, they, they just make it simple, they will recognize that even a human made object can have that presence. Mm -hmm. Is this um, entanglement? Because they did, she mentioned entanglement later on. Um, so is yeah. that is that what you mean by like the the kind of like the interwoven nature yeah. of animate things? Good. What you, Jerry, you have a view on this at all? Entanglement's um, an interesting term. Yeah, huh? uh, I forgot exactly what I was going to say, but I did have a, a thought earlier before how you were saying. Um, you know, I was just thinking through the concept of Schrodinger's cat. So Schrodinger's cat is like oh. the ultimate objectification of reality where not only is something not alive or alive, but it doesn't even exist until you perceive it. So it's almost like taking that objectivization of, of reality through science to an extreme. Um, yeah. And then the other, the, other con the other idea that I had was, you know, that, again, I'm still not 100% clear on this concept of um, what we were talking about, but, but if a human person creates an artwork that seems to embody a certain spirit, a certain emotion, a certain, it's almost like that it's well deserves not to be so objectified as well. What a fine example. Yeah, we, we have this uh, lineage of recognizing the aesthetic. Uh, again, just to reference religious naturalism again, I, what I appreciate about that gathering is largely a, a science-oriented community, but the wonder and beauty of the natural world, they want to recognize it, and definitely they are open to the aesthetic or the artistic expression among the human as a statement of that. And I, I think that's very helpful for uh, those of us in the West who have trouble with this grammar of animacy to realize that the spiritual manifests itself in place that we we do recognize, we do understand it. In fact, we pay a lot of money for it, mm -hmm. and which is right. a funny thing too, isn't it? To to move it into an economic realm, and in for indigenous people to pay a lot of money for spiritual things has an, its own history. It's not as if indigenous people have not paid money for spiritual things; they have. But it has a very different motivation than the capitalist orientation of the object. Rather, in the indigenous world, the spirit has to be recognized and honored with the transmission of gift. So if you take a plant from the ground, you should leave gift. And if you have a spiritual teacher who gives you wisdom that she has, you should honor her by paying or it's the gift again mm -hmm. i um i was also i think one theme that i noticed generally uh, and i guess we'll see if you agree um is this idea of storytelling and the the idea that um i think it said regarding cosmovision which um good I'll ask about in a second. It says Cosmovision allows beings in the world to tell their own stories. Good. Which made me think. <laughs> and in telling, 
make manifest deeper meanings of the world. So I, I found this very confusing, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't yeah. get it. Like, how, does, how do beings in the world, all beings, how do they tell their own story? What does this look like? Mm. Um, and throughout history, and how does it look like in the modern day mm. when Western science is kind of not necessarily giving a different story, but it did, I don't know, I'd, I would like to understand better how this fits in with yeah, Western yeah. science and modern society and everything. In my early studies in the history of religions, the term myth was very lively. And uh, in the mythic traditions of any culture or civilization, its, uh, its symbolic language extends often into an objectified world so that trees can speak or tree spirits or so in mythology we had no problem with the using the word story something could tell its story but it was mythic and in that sense it wasn't real yeah. however you're picking up on something in this statement that uh, uh that you're uh, referring to about cosmovisions that the, the stories that people told of the nature of reality was according to that reality all of the veracity and truth that uh, an ethical position could acknowledge so when uh, indigenous traditions uh, spoke uh, described animals as having all of the capacities of the human they meant it serious. They were speaking seriously about this capacity. And I think this is a, a question that has now come down to our own times. And I'm very much influenced again by Teilhard de Chardin, but especially as his thought came to Thomas Berry. And so he shaped my thinking in this regard that um, everything that we now encounter in the universe was there at the beginning of the primal flaring forest. It wasn't in its uh, current manifestation, but we are aware even in our scientific thinking that things change. We know that chemical compositions can change and interact and physically they can manifest themselves quite different. Water is a primary example, frozen liquid or steam. So we're, we're aware of this transformative but the sense of uh, the primal elemental character of all reality being at the primal moment has not entered into our worldview. I, I think we're groping in that direction. We're moving in that direction. And I think people like Teilhard and Thomas Berry are ahead of their times in that regard, whereas they're trying to build an ethical system or a, an ethical regard. I, I don't know, know if it's the word systems, I'll just back off that one, but trying to uh, acknowledge there is a call for an ethical relationship with all, all of reality. And that does not mean we will not eat one another, it, but we will eat in a different way. It doesn't mean we won't dig or extract, but we will dig and extract in a different way. And I think that way is something about the grammar of animacy, the way we talk to and an feel an obligation to talk to 
to address respectively, responsibly. These are in our times, I think, Sophia, you, we, I feel it among my students. When they talk about food nowadays and food distribution, they talk about very differently than when I was younger. So maybe in terms of animals on the table, I, I think that's similar to my own upbringing, but I, I moved away from that in my own uh, education towards that kind of objectifying of the world. But we're beginning to see, to realize now that the evolutionary biology is opening up an understanding of living forms as having emerged out of this evolutionary process. Huh? And the, um, pardon me, I got an urgent call from nobody. The, uh, <laughs> the sense of uh, the forms of reality as we encounter them have been in this evolutionary journey through time. Mm -hmm. And they manifest their journey in their present state. That's their story. Mm -hmm. And they're telling their story. And there have been traditions who listened to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how, how this influences like indigenous activism. And I have another quote. So, um, so the quote is regarding life ways, which it also mentions yeah. in the paper. So it'd be useful if uh, once I read the quote, maybe you could define that. Um, and it says, perhaps the closest one can get to describing unity in indigenous knowledge is that knowledge is the expression of the vibrant relationships between people, their ecosystems, and other living beings and spirits that share their land. All aspects of knowledge are interrelated and cannot be separated from the traditional territories that people are concerned. The purpose of these ways of knowing is to reunify the world or at least to reconcile the world to itself. Indigenous knowledge is the way of living within contexts of flux, paradox, and tension, respecting the pull of dualism and reconciling opposing forces. When I when I read this, I thought this isn't something that just is part of indigenous culture. This is something that all of us have to deal with all the time, right? Like the, the idea of flux and tension and paradox. So especially when we're talking about the environment and we're talking about social justice hmm. this seems really relevant so what does this look like practically um when people are trying to create um, a future that is more sustainable hmm. yeah that's such a wonderful question and the way you framed it sophia to to have a, a idea of a, of, a, of a conceptual term like lifeway and to begin to see how it's entangled with the world that we encounter out there. And as uh, Jerry, you were earlier rightfully emphasized the external out there, but also it's connected with the internal, the in here, the tumult of uncertainty and what is ahead of me and what will I have, what will I do when I'm stepping out into the world? So the capacity of a tradition to provide a story that centers people within themselves and within the world that they're encountering 
it centers them not in a way that removes the possibility of pain or uncertainty, but rather centers them in a way that that is a learning experience of a profound character and that it is yours. It's not someone else's, it's yours. And it's teaching us something very meaningful, maybe ultimate meaning about our journey ahead. And so that um, the, 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 th the three things let me talk about, Lifeway, Trickster, and I forgot the third because it's, you know, it's uncertainty and I forgot it. So maybe if it happens, it'll come back to me. If it doesn't, it wasn't meant to. But Lifeway is a term that I prefer when I'm talking about indigenous traditions, especially, I prefer it to religion. I don't erase religion. I think that's a helpful term too, but it carries so much baggage. Whereas Lifeway is a real, well, what do you mean then? You've reoriented the discussion. If we're talking about religion with its ultimate meaning, Lifeway then is in the way of life. There's some kind of ultimate meaning. You mean when I'm building a canoe or if I'm hunting, this is has ultimate meaning for me? Exactly. That's what indigenous elders are saying, that in the ordinary activity of life, it's not as if there are not extraordinary moments, high rituals or vision experiences. Those are exceptional and they are to be listened to extremely carefully, but the ordinary moments of life are flowing with this beauty of the grammar of animacy, the teachings of the world, the, the world is constantly speaking. So Thomas Berry would, when we, when I went to study with him and we would ask him like, uh, what we have now uh, scriptures or words, these, these texts, which are revelatory. And uh, is that the only kind of revelation? And he would say, oh my goodness, in the, in the medieval world, there were four kinds of revelation, not just one. The uh, natural world was considered revelatory. So here again, in the, in the Christian world, this religion and ecology project trying to bring forward ways in which nature or this, this term, even nature, separates us. Even <laughs> To have a term almost separates it, it others it. But if, we're in re if we have a sense of relationship with it, and that's why I want to come back to the quote you read too, what is a way of knowing? A life way is a way of knowing, and it's a way of knowing that stands in relationship. It's not a knowing of a fact that one can objectify, but it's a knowing of a relationship. That's, I think, very different than, uh, I, th I think of all of the schooling I went through where I learned facts, and I had to give them back, and I got high marks if I gave back the fact. But I, I wasn't taught the relationship with what I was thinking about or with the world itself. So the scriptural revelation, the natural world is revelation, and in the medieval Western world, the inner heart of the human was revelatory. So Dante is very good on that. You know, like he, he's in, he has this relationship with Beatrice, all through the Divine Comedy. He's, in, he's searching for the Divine but He's also searching for Beatrice, the love of his life, and the sense of the human heart. I, I, Teilhard also was raised with the early Christian symbolism of the sacred heart of Jesus, 
which many people find, yes, like so pious, they can't get into it at all. And I can understand that. But it still carries for me something very beautiful about the, uh, the interior, the centering of the human and the sense of heart as centering and that that holds the, the power of a revelatory mystery. So the, the scripture, the natural world, the human heart and history in the Middle Ages, the idea of history was revelatory. And so when history emerged as a discipline in the 19th century, it came on the scene in the West with a powerful force. And we still acknowledge history, even with all of our, some of our crazy politicians who, you know, like they seem to be speaking on every side of their mouth. We, we want to fact check and mm -hmm. we fact check by looking at history. The German yeah. historian Ranka, he said, what really happened as if we could get hold of the fact. And now we, we readjust it a bit. We say, well, communities make history. We mm -hmm. have various tellings, but we, we have a story. And we, we consult that story when we want to understand if someone is speaking out of the depth of their heart. Mm -hmm. Finally, the uh, the sense of heart revelation, all of the revelations. When Thomas Berry used to say, when those revelations are all working, we have something we call authenticity. And uh, authenticity in the Confucian tradition, especially, was a very high, high, very high virtue. The Chunza was someone of deep authenticity. The Chunza was such a person that when they walked through the woods, animals and trees turned to look at them as they passed. You know, it's like it's a powerful moment in the in these traditions when they when they try to articulate the mystery of uh, the human authenticity. In that sense, everything indigenous people talk about the world out there as being authentic and inauthentic at times too. But that that uh, just to end with Thomas Berry's image, where do we humans go when we look for authenticity? And he said, some people, they look in a mirror and they look at their own face and they feel like they can sense their authenticity. But he would say it's backwards or it's reversed and uh, it it's, can deceive us so easily. But when we look in the face of a friend, we see ourselves. And there's only one tradition I know, and that's the Confucian tradition, which elevated friendship into a divine relationship. That friendship was a way of a personal experience of your own authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's fun. So. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really like perspective shifting stuff right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh. I I like how you, I like how you you describe knowledge as a relationship or how in the quote they did I I hadn't really thought of that before, um, but it's funny that you mentioned Confucianism because I did actually before the quick fire questions I I have one last question about Confucianism um, and actually about the rituals of indigenous spirituality of cosmovisions and the life ways because. I think we probably we probably are not going to be able to get through an, an entire 
discussion without at least once mentioning the uh, horrible implications of colonialism um, and and the absolute horrors that indigenous populations have experienced as a result of it. And yeah. and I'm just I'm amazed when I read this. I hadn't really thought about it before. I was amazed at the fact that despite all of that, these cultures are still around and these yeah. ways of viewing the world are still they still exist like they weren't completely wiped out and is i was i wanted to ask you why how have they endured is it because of their rituals and and i know in confucianism rituals are very important and the ritual space is actually very sacred i'm wondering if is that what it is or is it that the ideas in indigenous spirituality um, have so much relevance to the study of religion and ecology and social justice that people connect with them very well. What is it that has led to the survival of mm. this kind of spirituality? Your mention of colonialism, of course, is a large topic, but uh, just to move to one point that's relevant here, uh, it caused many Native people to disavow their Native heritage in public. It, there was no advantage. It was a disadvantage. It was a stigma to be Native. So uh, in the colonialist or supremacist, white supremacist, or what, in the sense of whiteness in our world, it, uh, it denigrated uh, native, native people. So was it rituals then that enabled resilience? Without a doubt. And one of the most basic rituals is the sweat lodge in the North American context. And that's a whole discussion in itself. Some groups would say it's the oldest ritual. But remember, historically, in the 1890s into even my birth period in the 1940s, Native American rituals were prohibited. They were illegal on the on the state books of North Dakota. Sundance was illegal. The other states also, but I know my own state. And that ritual was never lost. It was hidden. So again, that's a whole discussion too. It's a very interesting discussion. But how, where the resilience then? Where's the survivance, use the term of uh, Gerald Visitor a profound Anishinaabe writer. And he has his own articulation of that, and I would recommend that to everyone to look at. But let me say Lifeway. The, the resilience and the survival is embedded in the language. When the language dies, then the survivance is dimmed down. Very, But if language survives, Lifeway survives because in that grammar of animacy is a relationship with land, biodiversity, humans, spirits, cosmos, and everything speaks to a person then. So it may be publicly one doesn't share with the other, with the white world, what it is that one is experienced, but among the community, the elders paid an incredibly high price. And many of the elders we know in boarding schools lost that capacity for language, for ritual, 
And what were they left with? You know, the inner heart revelation. And maybe the natural world would speak to them, but who do they go to to get guidance about what they're hearing? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a profound question. Yeah, well, I know you have work to get back to, so let's skip to the quick fire questions. But before okay. that, I just want to, again, say thank you so much. This has been a really um, eye-opening conversation. It's kind of an kind of an area. I'm not sure if I mentioned, but I in school we study religious religious studies, but we just study Christianity. So this is all stuff that was very new to me, but also very very like mind boggling in a good way. Um, I'm sure my dad will probably say the same thing because neither mm. of us are very familiar with indigenous spirituality. But but yeah, mm. thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, I really enjoy. The conversation and uh, Jerry, I so appreciate your thoughtfulness and your capacity to sit patiently while I'm uh, going on it. Over absolutely, over thank you. <laughs> okay, so oh, yeah. now for the quick fire questions, which I put together. Oh, they're, oh, yeah. they're in the oh, work. Wow. So, if you have any suggestions for good questions to ask future guests, I'm open. Uh, um, so the first one is what's your life's theme song and why? Well, I saw that and I thought, uh, what a wonderful world. I like the song and I, I think so many of the things I've said earlier, you can see how they would flow into that. Mm -hmm. yeah. The world is speaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's telling its story. Yes. If you live to be 200, what's one thing you would do differently? I think languages. I would be much more attentive to indigenous languages. And I would also want to sit down with uh, elders in my own family. And I would like to have talked to them a bit more. Mm -hmm. Not just to record them, maybe that too. But more importantly, I wanted to hear from their lips their story. Mm -hmm. What's the worst advice you've been given? Uh, probably to follow someone else's advice. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the uh, the sense of uh, trying to conform or produce work that responds to someone else's questions. It's better to have your own question. Mm -hmm. um, if your life was a story, what would it be titled? Well, I like that uh, song title too, but uh, uh, I uh, have been for the last decade very interested in the configuration, sensing, minding, creating. For me, it's like a trinity. It's an effort to get at the mystery of reality from the primal flaring forth, sensing, reaching out. All of reality has been reaching out. Why was it that we had a, a plasma smooth world and it suddenly became lumpy and we have galaxies? Well, you know, how did that happen? Sensing, reaching out, minding, patterning. Sensing and minding, you can't separate them. From the beginning, there's patterning within this reaching out and creating. We had a smooth universe and suddenly we got galaxies. Talk about creative moments. I mean, wow, it's, it's happening all around us. Sensing, minding, creating. We are, so that's my, uh, that's my theme song for the last decade. Cool. 
and the last question is Claire Booth Moose once told President oh. Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What is your sentence? Uh, it's something like, uh, it's a, it's a paraphrase of Schelling. Schelling, Schelling was, uh, he was fascinated with what, what appears in nature that our minds can, uh, uh perceive it. And Schelling said, that doesn't interest me. The reverse does. What is it about nature that our minds came from it? So that's, I like that line from Shelley. Hmm. What is it about the nature that our minds came? And by nature, I mean cosmos, the whole yeah. flaring forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's well, all what we- fun we've had. Yeah, I know. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Hey, everyone. It's me again, breaking the fourth wall, just to say thank you for getting to the end of the episode. Thank you to my dad for joining me during this conversation, and thank you so much to Dr. John Grimm for letting me pick his brain. I hope you really enjoyed the discussion. Please let me know what you thought. I will leave a link to my website in the show notes and let you know how to contact Dr. Grimm if you have any questions. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.